The following is a recording from ACF Church in Eagle River, Alaska. If you would like to join us on a Sunday morning, we would love to have you be our guest. Service times are 9 and 11 a.m. We hope you'd consider partnering in the work God is doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you would like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can safely give by texting a donation amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Hey, good morning, ACF Church. How you guys doing? Hey, welcome to fall. Welcome to kick off at ACF Church. We are so glad that you're here today. If you are new, welcome. Uh, welcome to church. And uh, I don't know, can you preach with a red solo cup? I'm doing it. So uh, anyway, so we're, uh, we're kicking off a new series and uh, we are excited about this. Before, before we get into what we're going to talk about, um, I just wanted to celebrate. So if you didn't know, we launched a new church service on Wednesday night this last week. And so what we're calling our, our Wednesday night church plant. And we were so excited. We had 174 people showed up to that. So let's give God a hand for that. Pretty awesome. It truly is like planting a church uh, because there's a whole crowd of people that aren't here this morning because they were at church on Wednesday. In fact, I've seen a few of them posting up on Facebook like, I'm sleeping in on Sunday. Is that okay? I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure I'm okay with that. And so, uh, I want to encourage you guys, uh, if Wednesday night's a better night for you, if you're busy on the weekend, please join us for that service. It's a great chance to, uh, to go to church and it's the same service that we're having here on Sunday. The other thing is this, and we talked about this on Wednesday. We are stepping into kind of uncharted territory for our church and for our area. There's really no other churches doing a midweek service in our community, uh, a full service like this. And so we see it as a chance to share the gospel with our city in some new ways. People often are working on the weekends or they're hunting or out of town uh, for various reasons. And so it's a chance for you to reach your neighbor and say, hey, come on Wednesday night. Uh, For some people, Sunday morning is a little awkward in general, just going to church and, and the whole feel might be kind of strange for some church people. And so Wednesday night may be a better opportunity for some as well. But I want to encourage you guys. uh, You guys are a part of this. All of you are a part of this. Uh, This new thing on Wednesday, even the fact that you're here on Sunday morning, but not on Wednesday, doesn't change that you are part of this new season as a church. And uh, every seat in this room that isn't filled, every open seat represents a friend of yours or a neighbor or a co-worker or somebody at school that needs to hear about Jesus. And so for me, here's, here's my heart. I'm not okay with empty seats, not because we want to fill the room, but because we want to share the gospel with our city. And so I want to encourage you guys, um, as people filter to Wednesday night, it's going to be easier to find a seat here. And so I want you to think about, even right now, is, and we're going to just pray in a minute, about who it is that you'd invite to church next week, uh, who it is that you need to begin reaching out intentionally with, inviting over to dinner, and spending time with as a family. So could we just pray for this new season as a church together? Jesus, thank you so much that we are part of this movement of the kingdom of God in Eagle River. God, that you have reached down into our lives and you have changed us in such a way that causes us to not be okay with those who don't know you. Not be okay with the fact that there are people in our city that are, um, that, that are without the hope of Jesus. And we want to run to them, God. We want to seek them out and show uh, your love and our love to them. And God, so I just pray in this next season for us as a church that we would have uh, the hearts of missionaries. The hearts of those who would go into our city and love in the name of Jesus. And so we look forward to new things. God, we're thankful for new things. And God, we ask that we would follow you in each step of the way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So we are in a series called Fanatic, and I am excited about this. Our culture has no shortage of things to be fans of. Uh, many of you are fans of a lot of different things. We got some, uh, some NFL fans in the room. Come on, NFL fans. We got a few of you guys. Uh, I, I looked up some statistics because I know this is such a big deal. 202.3 million people gathered to watch NFL last year. That's a lot of people. Uh, how about NASCAR fans in the room? Got some NASCAR people, some Southern people. Uh, in the South, it is a religion of NASCAR and football for sure. And so NASCAR is a big deal. The, the statistic I looked up on that, $600 million will be brought in this year in just tickets and TV revenues. So NASCAR is a huge money maker uh, as well. How about movies? Some of you guys love to go to movies. Can any of you tell me what was the biggest blockbuster hit in the past year? What was the biggest one? Throw it out. What was it? Jurassic Park was the biggest movie of the year. So far, 77 million people went to watch Jurassic Park. Can you imagine? 77 million people. That's a lot of people. How about hunters? You got some hunters in the room? Lots of people going hunting this year. I I looked on the Alaska Fishing Game website. 100,000 Alaskans will hit the fields this year to go hunting. So lots of fans. I love good food, too. I don't know if you're a good food person, but um, Double Muskie has this thing called a pepper steak down in Girdwood, and it is the best steak in America, I swear to you. So if you haven't had the pepper steak, you need to save up for about a month, and then you can go down to the Double Muskie and get your pepper steak. Uh, Moose's Tooth Pizza. I love their Chipotle pizza there, Chipotle steak pizza. Uh, Kaladi Brothers Coffee. I just, I love good food. I'm a fan of a lot of different things. But one thing that we know about fans is there are fans and there are fanatics, right? And the fanatics are like the freaks. They are, they are just over the top into whatever they are into, willing to give their life savings and all their time and their energy to whatever it is that they are obsessed with. About And so an example of this is my wife and I. So my wife, Amanda, is an Alabama graduate. Uh, roll Tide. Come on. Anybody? Crickets. Oh. Ouch. She's not here. She came to Wednesday. She would be brokenhearted. So she loves Alabama. She went to the school, ran for University of Alabama, and she, uh, she poured her heart and soul into the school. And so if you know anything about college football in the South, it is religion. It is going to church when you go to a football game. And so she loves Bama football. For me, I got the jersey because I love my wife. In fact, when, when we were first dating, I thought it would be funny if I made fun of the University of Alabama. It's not funny. It's not funny at all. Uh, it caused some real problems in the relationship. I, I thought it was cute. She's like, it's not cute. I'll go find another boyfriend. I don't know. Like, if you can't love Bama, you don't love me. And so I realized this was a big deal to her. And, and so I don't know what you're a fan of, but so there's a difference between Amanda and I when it comes to football. I'm a fan. Uh, I got the jersey just to support her, but if, you know, Alabama disappeared, I'd go get another jersey. For her, she would go into deep depression, you know. I mean, her life would be over because it's the difference between a fan and a fanatic. And Amanda is a fanatic of Bama football. And so we're going to enter into a new series here, and this is a 12-week study of a letter from this guy named James. And 12 weeks may seem like a long time. If you're from ACF Church and you've been around here, you know most of the series we do are about four to five weeks long. Um, 12 weeks is just barely enough time to get through this book. In fact, it's probably too short for all of the good meaty stuff in this book. But the theme of James, the big picture idea of James 
is transitioning yourself from a faith that is worthless to a faith that is genuine. And James is all about helping us understand that there is genuine faith, true faith, and then worthless faith. And, and he's writing to this group of people that would have had this tendency to just gather with others, to maybe call themselves Christ's followers, but it doesn't change their lives. It doesn't change the way that they live. And so James is, honestly, it's a very difficult book. It's one of the most practical books in the Bible as we study it. And, and as I thought about it for our church, I think it's going to meet us right where we're at, and I think it's going to be really tough. I think it's going to be really difficult. In fact, as a kickoff series, you know, we should be talking about, you know, how to make a better, have a better relationship or, you know, how to have more hope in this way. Or, and people are drawn to that stuff. The book of James is like, change your life. You know, not only does Jesus change your life, but you got to lean in and you got to apply some effort and some, some stress in your life so that you can be more like Christ. And so uh, that's not that popular of a message. And I know that, um, but I think this is where we need to go as a community. And I think here in 12 weeks, our church is going to look different. I, I think that the, the, the Church of Eagle River would, will look different if we lean into our city. I believe that people will look in at ACF and see something that's more than just a Sunday morning religious activity, more than a gathering of cars in a parking lot that they know nothing about. But these are people who look a lot like Jesus. And so I'm excited about this next season. But this book, here's my challenge to you. I've made it a point every couple days to be reading the book of James as I've been preparing for this series. I'd encourage you to do that for the next 12 weeks uh, as you go home from church. I want you to go home, get some lunch, hang out for a little bit, but then open your Bibles or get on your iPhone or whatever it may be and open up to the book of James and read the entire book once a week. Read the whole thing. It takes 15 minutes. It's 108 verses. It's not that long. But I, I swear to you, if you will do this, uh, your life will be changed. If you will read these words and apply them and let God convict your heart, that we will all be different for this. And so uh, it's, a, it's a good book. It's a difficult book. Um, like I said, 108 verses, 59 of them are imperatives or commands. 59 of these, these, ver the, these verses are telling you to go do something. Go change your life. Go apply yourself in this way or another. And so it's a really, it's really like, let's put some wheels on this faith. Let's not just go to church and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I checked the box, but let's go do this stuff as a family. And so the thing about James is he's not just any guy writing a book. James is actually Jesus's little brother. So we get a really important perspective on Jesus, a really powerful perspective on Jesus as we hear the words of James, because guess what? James lived with Jesus. He watched him grow up. I'm picturing James eating Wheaties across from Jesus, like he grew up with Jesus. He saw him like all day long and lived life with Jesus. And so we can imagine that James is, is an influencer. James is a well-known guy because he's the brother of Jesus, and he is one of the most important testimonies of Jesus as the Messiah because you know what? If anybody would have known that Jesus was a fraud, it would have been James. Like if Jesus was, was just faking it, pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, if, if Jesus had this big plan to create this religious movement just for himself, but he wasn't truly God, wouldn't his little brother know? Come on, little brothers in the room, right? You know the worst of your big brother. And, and, and then how would you feel if all of a sudden your big brother said, I'm God? You know, can you imagine how you'd be like, uh-uh, no, I've seen, I seen it. You are not God. But, but James goes through this struggle 
And, and we're going to hear a little bit, um, before we get to the book of James, I want to talk to you about Jesus' family a little bit. Because one thing we, we know is that if you want to get to know somebody really well, who do you talk to? Their family, right? You get to know their family. And Jesus' family, he has a big family, brothers and sisters. And guess what? It's kind of a mess. And, and, and many of them don't believe that he is who he says he is. In fact, James is the first one to deny that Jesus is who he says he is. And, and he's part of this whole uh, thing that we read in Mark 3. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, this is really interesting as we see Jesus dealing with his family. It's Mark chapter 3, verse 21. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So here's Jesus. He started his ministry. He's starting to heal people, performing miracles. He's teaching. But he's not just teaching and helping people. He's doing it with this new authority that nobody had ever seen. I mean, he's not just a good rabbi. He's not just a good teacher. Jesus is coming with the authority of God into this community. And people are like, I don't know what to think about this. Who does this guy think he is? And his family, his family is going, we got to protect Jesus from himself. I mean, he's kind of gone off the deep end. Jesus is kind of like crazy Uncle Eddie, right? That Every family's got this crazy person that you kind of have to protect from themselves, you know? Like every Christmas, it's like, oh yeah, you know, he's going to be drunk in the corner with a lampshade on his head. We got to, you know, take him out of the room, protect him from himself. You know, we've all got that family member. Jesus was that family member. He wasn't getting drunk, but Jesus was, Jesus was that family member. He was the guy that, that they were kind of embarrassed of, like, oh, I don't know. We've got to protect this guy from himself. He's kind of out of his mind. Then Mark 6, verse 3, if you want to flip over there a few chapters later, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. It says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus goes back to Nazareth, back to his hometown, and he sees all his old buddies. Have you gone back home in a while? Maybe seen all your old friends? How is that interaction? It's kind of interesting, right? Because your life has changed. You've become a different person, maybe, if you've been away from home for a while. Jesus is, uh, is growing, and he's, he's learning just like any human being, and he's starting to use his gifts, and he's showing his authority as God himself. And his buddies are like, who does this guy think he is? I mean, seriously, like they, they were offended at who Jesus had become, which is really interesting. Maybe you've, you've experienced this as well. And then Jesus responds in verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives. And in his own household. And he could not do a mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And so put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a minute. Don't forget that this is a human being. Jesus is a man. And these are people who he loved, who spent time with him, who he had relationships with. And right now what we're seeing is these are the people causing the deepest wounds. These are the people saying, you are not who you think that you are. You'll always be that little kid that I've always seen. I mean, some of you have felt that pain before where you're trying to grow up, you're trying to change some things in your life, and the people are, who are closest to you, who should have your back in every situation, are the ones that wound you the deepest. 
Or maybe the last ones to have faith that something could change in your life. So here we see Jesus growing and doing ministry and becoming uh, this, this amazing teacher who we, we all find out later is the Messiah himself. And people deny him and doubt him. So when we read, the story continues on. We know that Jesus ended up going to the cross. His huge following of people ends up dwindling to just a few um, as Jesus is persecuted and, and jailed. And then he ends up going to the cross, is, is crucified. A sword is pressed into his side. He literally bleeds out and is dead for three days and then is resurrected to new life. And then what does he do? He goes back to, to his hometown, which is awesome. I mean, wouldn't you do that if you were resurrected? It's like, I'm back. The boys are back in town. I can imagine Jesus walking the streets. Like if you've ever gone back to your old high school, like I conquered this place, right? I mean, this feeling of, man, here I am. I am back. And, and it's interesting. Who's he go to first? His mom, right? Because if you die and are resurrected, go to your mom first because she's going to want to know you're okay, right? So Jesus goes to his mom and he says, I'm okay. I'm resurrected. I'm alive. And then who does he go to? He goes to James, his brother, the doubter, the man who denied him, who thought he was crazy. And I just think about this interaction between Jesus and James. I imagine them looking each other in the face. I imagine tears flowing down James' face. I imagine him looking at his brother going, I'm so sorry I doubted you. You're alive. And I imagine Jesus embracing his brother in this beautiful moment. And, and many people believe that this is when James got saved. This is when conversion happened. When James was face to face with Jesus, he had denied him his whole life. He had tried to protect Jesus from himself. And at this moment, James has a conversion moment. Many of you have been there where you are denying what God is doing in your life and you're, you're struggling with it. You're not sure you believe in Jesus. And then you have a moment where you are face to face with him. And oftentimes there's tears and there's emotions. And it's like, I can't believe I didn't believe. And so this is the moment that we find ourselves. So James, the classic doubter, I think he would fit in here at ACF Church because we have a lot of doubters. We have a lot of people who struggle with the faith or people who were doubters and now believe. So James is that story. He goes from doubter, and, and what we know at the end of his story is that he becomes a martyr and ends up dying for the thing that he doubted when he was younger. So let's start off in James chapter 1. If you want to open up there, you can follow along again on the screen behind me. So we start off with this James begins his letter by introducing himself. James, a servant of God. So what you need to know is that in the New Testament, there were multiple people named James. And oftentimes, it would be, uh, they'd be introduced as James from here or James from there. So you would know like which James they were talking about. But as you read the Bible, if you hear the name James and there's no location tied to him, oftentimes that's because we're talking about James, Jesus' little brother. Because he's the guy that needed no introduction. It's kind of like we had uh, the president in town in the past couple weeks, right? Uh, big deal in Alaska. You know, everybody's painting their, their front of their buildings and we're cleaning up the streets. Big, big uh, hurrah in Anchorage. And I was waiting on the phone call, you know, like uh, I was waiting by the phone for like a dinner invitation or something. You know, like, hey, Brian, uh, this is Barack Obama. I'm, just want to meet you for dinner, talk about the spiritual climate of Alaska. I didn't, I didn't get anything like that, but had I gotten a phone call from Barack Obama, had I heard, hey, this is Barack Obama, I would not have said, Barack who? I, 
I know, I know a bunch of Brocks. Give me, give me a little bit more to work with. I would have known exactly who he was. And that's how it is with James. He doesn't have to tell you where he's from because he is the James, uh, the little brother of Jesus. Everybody would have known this guy. And I love that he doesn't give you his credentials. He doesn't even say, I'm James, and you should listen to me because I'm Jesus' little brother. You know, my brother could beat up your brother. Like, I, I have authority because of who my brother is. James doesn't need to do that. I had somebody introduce themselves to me a while back, and they were like, hey, I am Reverend whatever. And other people might say, I am Dr. whatever. And so we work hard for the letters that we put in front of our names. But it's interesting, James, he doesn't feel like he has to tell you anything more than he is a servant of God. That's who I am. It's like James's whole identity, everything that he is, is bound up in one thing. I am just a servant to God. I don't need to tell you any more than that. That is who I am. And then he goes on, and this is awesome. He says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word servant could be better translated not as servant, but as slave. So he's literally saying, hi, I'm James, and I'm a slave to my brother. You know, and some of you would say that too, right? You're like, I did their laundry, I cleaned up their room, I did, but he's, he is submitting himself to Jesus. He's like, I am James. And all you need to know about me is I am a slave to God and to my brother. Not because he was my brother, not because of a blood relation or anything like that, but because of who he is and what he's done for me. So I love that this is who James is. And he says, uh, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And so he's writing to this dispersion, this, this church that is separated around the community because they are being persecuted, going through difficult things out of the resurrection. I can imagine the Romans were like, where is the body? What's going on? Who was this Jesus? And these people who were Jesus' followers had to run for their lives. And so they were dispersed, and he sends them greetings. And one thing you'll know about James as we get into this is James loves the church. He loves people. He's not casting stones at the church. He's not trying to hurt the church. You get the sense that he was a pastor before he was ever a writer. He just loves people. And so he moves on from there, from this introduction, to talk about what we're talking about this morning, which is conflict, temptation, trials. Because these people, that's what they needed to hear about. James is like, okay, you know who I am. Let me talk to you about what's pressing in your world right now. You guys are going through some hard stuff. And then he moves on and he tells them this in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what is a trial? If you were to describe a trial, if we were to discuss it, you might define a trial as something difficult, something hard, something you want to get out of, something painful. I don't know what your experience is with trials, but for most people, a trial is something bad, and I just want to get away from it. But here's what I want you to do. If you have a paper Bible, does anybody still have paper Bibles anymore? If you have a paper Bible, grab a pen. Um, you can't do this on your iPhone screen because I'm going to have you circle. Uh, you could, but it'd be funny. Uh, I'm going to have you circle every time you read the word trial and temptation. 
in this book. So as we go through it, you're going to read trial, temptation, trial, temptation. And, and the reason is because in the original language, these are the same word, trial and temptation. I think that's really fitting too because what I know about my life is that when I go through a trial or a test, there are temptations, aren't there? Every time I deal with something difficult, every time I struggle through something, there are temptations in my life. Different ways that I could deal with it. You know, you run through different scenarios of how I could process this hard thing that I'm going through. And then, so James, he starts off with, I think, some of the most ludicrous words in Scripture. Some of the most difficult words in the Bible. He says, consider it pure joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. How's that land on you? You like that? Consider it joy, brother. Consider it joy, sister. Life is hard. Yay, right? I mean, what is he saying here? Is this like put a smile on your face, laugh a little bit? Yes, you lost your job. Be happy about it. I mean, what do we do with these words? And some of you have even been wounded by these words. Some of you have, have had Christians launch like little truth grenades into your life when you are in pain. You know, you're dealing with something hard and they're like, hey, consider it joy, brother, and you just want to punch him in the face, right? It's like, that's not necessarily the first thing that you do when somebody's in a trial. This is kind of a side note, but Jesus, you know, in the death of his friend Lazarus, you know what he does? He doesn't just launch truth grenades. He doesn't send a private message with a bunch of scriptures to him. He goes and he weeps with them. He cries with them. He spends time feeling the pain that they're feeling and empathizing with them. And then, and there is a place for truth and there's a place for speaking and saying, who is God in your pain? And that's where we're going. But make sure you don't rush into that uh, without acknowledging the, the struggle that is certainly there in your pain. Because one thing we know is that pain is never fun. Pain is never easy. And that in this world, there really is only one way to deal with pain and that's to just try to get out of it. Just try to run from it. And, and for most people, the best life is the life without pain. If I can just avoid as much pain as possible and experience the most comfort as possible, that is how most people define a fulfilling whole life. But it's interesting that's not the case in the kingdom of God. That is not the case as we read in Scripture. Because we have this belief as Christians that trials all submit to God's sovereignty. That God is over all these things that happen, and, and he's actually a part of allowing these things to happen. That it's not like God is surprised by our pain, but we believe that everything passes through the hands of God. Everything happens because God either causes or allows or whatever terminology you're comfortable with, but things happen beneath God's sovereignty. He is over all things in our lives. And because of that, as Christians, what we believe is that when the ugliness of our lives intersects with the sovereignty of God, what results in the end is something beautiful, something good. That it grows, as James says, steadfastness and strength, and that we are literally empowered through the pain by God by working our way through it. And so these are easy words to say, and really hard words to apply, right? It's one thing to be like, oh yeah, it's going to make me better. I remember I backed into my wife's car. She parked right behind me and I looked at all the mirrors and I couldn't see it. She had a Honda Civic and uh, threw it in reverse. 
and the, the trailer hitch went right through the grill. I mean, it was, it was a bad deal. And I just get out and I'm like, are you kidding me? And I go in and I get my wife and she comes out and she's, she doesn't really care about cars. And she's like, ah, she goes, it's got a little character now, right? Why do people say that? We all say it's got a little character, right? And it's killing me. It's like, I just dented your car all up. It's horrible. She's like, it's got character. And I, I think what we mean by that is that, you know, when we see something that's dented up, I think we know it's got a story, right? We know that it's been through some stuff, like my old truck that's parked outside, that dented up old Chevy. It's a, it's a beat up old truck, but when you look at it, you just think, what has this thing been through, right? I mean, what has this thing experienced? And I, I feel like we are kind of like that, that we end up with some dents and dings in our life. We're kind of worn out maybe by the end, but we have been through some stuff, and they've all contributed to the story that makes us who we are. And maybe some of it's been bad, maybe some of it's been good, but God and his sovereignty is working it all together. And some of you know this, you've been through hard things, and you know hindsight is twenty twenty. and you look back and you say, okay, yeah, God did amazing things through this. I doubted him, I struggled with it, but here we are. And then James moves on, after talking about trials, to talk about wisdom. Because one thing we know is that when we're in a trial and we're struggling, what's the one thing you need? Wisdom. You need wisdom. You need to know, okay, God, what is next? Maybe you've laid in bed recently going, God, just tell me what to do. Give me some wisdom. Like, speak to me, God. And he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The first thing he says is this. If you need wisdom, you should probably ask for it. It's a good place to start. Like, start by asking God for wisdom. But don't just ask God for wisdom. Ask in faith. So what does he mean here? What does it mean to ask for wisdom in faith? Have you ever heard God speak and been like, Nah. No. That's not God. That's something else. That can't be not no way. Have you ever heard that? Maybe a friend of yours has given you advice and you've been like, Yeah, I don't need that advice. I mean I, I know I was asking for your opinion, but that's a just that's just a bad opinion. Like I don't know what you're thinking. James, he's speaking about the kind of person that would ask for wisdom from God and have the faith to follow him as he speaks. The faith to listen to God. The faith not to just hear the words of God, but then to act upon it. So he's not talking about some kind of psychological acrobatics, like as God speaks to you, you just need to convince yourself that, that, that God's going to do what he says. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a faith that results in action. Because one thing we know about faith is that faith is never static. It's always in motion. Faith is always in motion. And as you read about faith in Scripture, it's always in the context of somebody being obedient to God, listening to God, trusting Him. And so if you get wisdom from God, but you don't do anything with it, James is like, hey, that's kind of worthless. Don't ask for wisdom like that. Ask for wisdom and be ready for the answer when God gives it to you. And he said, but let him ask in faith, but with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So I love this verse 
But this verse has been so abused. This verse has been applied to absolutely everything. Like, hey, you can ask God whatever you want as long as you ask him in faith. You can literally control God if you just believe hard enough. Whatever you want. This is the theology that's floating around. I mean, you can have an easy life. You can have all the money you want. You just need to believe harder. And and the deeper wound that this causes, this theology causes, is I remember I was was praying for my grandma once, and, and she had cancer. She ended up dying of cancer. But I remember laying in bed, praying that God would heal my grandmother, just pleading with God. And I remember getting done praying and going, I don't believe, I don't believe enough. Like, I'm not sure I believe that God's going to heal her. I mean, what if, what if he doesn't heal her because I'm not, I don't believe hard enough. Like, I need to believe that God will do this. I need to, 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 to trust that he will. And feeling this weight and this burden that almost as if her lack of healing was my fault. And this is the, this is the messed up theology that comes out of this if we're not careful. He's not speaking about that. Because what we know about Scripture is it says also the faith of a mustard seed can move a what? A mountain, right? So even my little, little weak faith can change the world. And so uh, here's, here's what I know. He's, he's speaking about wisdom. And he's, he's saying just ask for, God, ask for wisdom from God and don't be double-minded about it. He goes on to say he is double mi- a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And, and, and this double-mindedness, it's actually... Uh, it's actually like two-souled is how it's translated. It's like you have two different souls. Anybody feel that sometimes? Come on, you guys feel that, right? Two different souls. Like there's the part of me that's, that's, that wants to do the right thing, that knows that God's way is going to be better, that, that it's going to be better for my family. And then there's a the part of me that just wants to walk the other direction, just wants to ignore it and plug my ears. And he's saying that kind of person is like to have two souls. So don't buy into that whole, like, I can force God to do what I want theology. Um, it, it's kind of like this. We've shown you this slide before. I found this picture online. Um, this is kind of how people see it a lot of times. Uh, you know, you have a little, it's a faithometer. If you have just a little faith, uh, it'll get you saved, which is cool. So heaven everlasting is my reward. That's awesome. So I got a little faith. I got salvation. We all know that, you know, you can, you can believe a little harder. And so if you believe a little harder, maybe you get good parking spots. Maybe you get that raise at work, you know. Maybe you find that cute guy will finally ask you out. I don't know what it is. So just believe it, and it's going to happen. And then there's like the level 10 Christian, the healing Christian, you know. It's like you believe so strongly that you can make anybody better. And so anyway, don't buy this. This is, a, this is an unhelpful theology. Trust God. Be a person of prayer. Be diligent in prayer. Bring your petitions to God. If you want healing, pray that you would be healed. Ask for prayer. Fill out the card at the end of church that you need prayer for something. Please pray because we believe God, God does hear our prayers, but it's all underneath this umbrella of God's sovereign plan that he's working out in the world around us. And then it says this. It goes on to say, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So I I read that and I was like, well, that was kind of out of nowhere. Like out of left field, we were just talking about wisdom, and now we're talking about flowers. What's the deal? So James is talking to this small group of early Christians, 
and probably all of them were 90% underneath the, the, the poverty level in this area. And so these people had very little. They were struggling to make ends meet. He's saying, if you have very little, this is maybe your trial, that you don't have enough resources to do what you want to do. He says, let him boast in his exaltation. And what that means is simply to say, let him boast in Jesus. Let him boast in what God has done in his life. It's that whole like, yeah, I don't have enough, but God is still so good. And it's funny how little statements like that, uh, we write them off as cliches. They sound very churchy. But then when you understand the deep theology behind things like the fact that your life can be falling apart, you can lack resources, you can lose your job, you can struggle to pay the bills, and yet you can look at the world and you can look up at God and say, you are so good. I mean, doesn't that change things? Doesn't it literally change everything about the way that you view your life? It's so countercultural. Then he looks at the rich man. He says, in the rich to boast in his humiliation. So this part, I believe, is, is to us. We are the rich in comparison to the world, although sometimes maybe you write all the bills out and you empty out your checking account and you still got a stack left to pay. We are probably the rich, most likely to the rich. And then he says, boast in his humiliation. So he's encouraging you not to boast in your riches, but to boast in the fact that you are nothing without Jesus. To boast in that, like, I have nothing. I can contribute nothing of worth. All I do is things that, that serve me. That's all that I do. And yet, he's saying, boast in your humiliation. Elevate Christ and what he has done. Like, I am nothing, and yet with Christ, I have value. And then he talks about flowers and scorching heat. What he's talking about there is, is how, in the end, all of our pursuits and all that we invest in will be shown for what they truly are. Everything you build in this world, every conversation you have, every relationship you built, one day will be shown for what it is. You see, the second point is this. Trials show our hearts. They reveal our hearts to us and to the people around us. And some of you guys know this, that when you go through hard things, all the stuff comes out, right? All the junk in your life comes out. When it's difficult, sometimes that's when we're at our worst, that's what trials do. They show us what really matters, and then they give us an opportunity to reevaluate and ask ourselves, do I really care about the right things? Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's a really interesting passage. He, he's getting at our own desires. He's getting at that sometimes we do this. We say, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you bring me through this? Why would you tempt me this way? He said, God is not tempting you. You are tempting you. Like he's saying, James is saying, own up, church, to all of the temptations in your life. It's not from God. It is from you. And then he, he has this really interesting illustration. He says, your desires when conceived, give birth to sin. It's, it's like he's saying your desires are all pregnant. Ever thought about it this way? It's like you have desires, your desires are pregnant. And those desires give birth to sin. 
And that sin gives birth to death. So he's saying, hey, watch your desires. Because we all have desires to do things that are not good for us. Maybe you want that relationship that you know is not healthy for you. Maybe, maybe you want to, you know, to spend money on this thing that you know is not good for your family right now. You know, maybe you want to burst out in anger at your boss or at your teacher. Maybe you have certain tendencies, these desires. James is saying you get to decide what you want to do with that desire because it's pregnant and it's about to pop. And what's going to come out is sin. He's saying that is your desires because even the good things we try to do as human beings at our core, we are sinful people. James is saying, you're going to burst out with with sin. That's what, you're not going to give birth to this pretty little thing. It's going to be sin is going to come out. And he said, ultimately, a life of that gives birth to death. So James is warning us, control your desires. Decide what you do with them. You will always have tendencies. I will always have tendencies to, to do things that I shouldn't do. But what I do with them is up to me. And so he's saying, be careful there. And then he says, do not be deceived, my brothers, in verse 16. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Don't be deceived. He's speaking to this crowd of people that as they come through their desires, you know what they tend to do? They tend to think, I got this. I got this. It's so strange. I wish the Bible was more relevant, right? He, he, we come through with these desires. He's talking to these people that were like, yeah, I think we're starting to do better. And then they had a tendency to say, I am, I'm fine. I, I think I'm strong enough. In fact, I think that I'm, I think I can control myself. And, and in fact, you know, like, I probably don't need to be in community with other believers. I probably don't need to be a person of prayer. I probably don't need anymore to be crying out to God. I mean, life is better now. In fact, I think I probably did all the work, honestly. You know, like, I came through this difficult time, and now I'm better. It's, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. I've got three kids. And every time I teach my kids to ride bikes, I go through this, this experience. Because if you're a parent, you get this. And so you put the kid on the bike, and you finally get rid of the training wheels, and they're on the bike, and they're like, okay, go. And so they start pedaling, and I hold the, uh, I hold the seat. I hold the bottom of the seat. So they kind of walk, you know, they, they ride around, and they're riding, and they're, you know, making their way around the driveway. And then at some point, what do they yell to me? Let go, right? Daddy, let go. I got this. And in my head, you, I'm just, I'm playing this whole thing out, right? I can see the other end of this thing. And I'm going, oh, I don't know. And they're like, no, Daddy, I'm good. I got this. Look at me. I'm upright. I'm, 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 I'm riding around. I'm doing pretty good. Let go. And I let go. And what happens? Bam, right into the ground, right? Every single time. And it hurts as a parent. As a parent, every time you see that, you're like, oh, I knew it was coming. But you think to yourself, okay, get them up. Wipe off the tears, you know, a couple band-aids on the blood marks, you know, and we're going we're gonna to get you back on your feet, get you back on the bike. And you realize as a parent, this is all part of the journey, that literally they will never learn how to ride that bike if they don't fall. They're just going to have to fall. And I, I just, I see God doing this with us. Like, we're going, I got this. And he's like, no, you don't. And you're like, no, I do. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. I don't, I don't really need you now. I'm good, you know. And then there we are on the ground looking up at the sky going, what just happened? 
And then God is there as a loving father to pick us up, to be close to us and to love us in those moments. So we, uh, we've got some families that have dealt with some hard things. Some of you are dealing with hard things. And um, we want to just share their story. So would you just watch this story? I'm Ryan, and this is my wife, Dana. Uh, we're originally from Abilene, Texas. We, have, we met in high school and went off to college and got married our senior year of college. I was at UTSA and my wife was at North Texas. We're up here due to the military. We've been at ACF for about a year now, a little over a year. Uh, we have a two-year-old, Riley Hope, and a three-month-old, Finley Grace. And we also have a daughter, Grace and Faith, who um, would be almost four the end of September. Um, we, never, we never quite thought becoming parents would look the way it did for us. We were so excited expecting our first child and we went in for um, just a routine 20-week ultrasound um, trying to decide if we should find out if we were having a boy or a girl and really um, ended that day in heartbreak. Um, they, found, um, they found many concerns and sent us to specialists and after that um, we were told that we were carrying a child incompatible with life. That it would probably be best to terminate. She wouldn't survive. And um, we carried Grayson full term. She was born alive in our arms. Um, just tiny, three pound, sweet. I can't even describe those 75 minutes, like just completely covered. Um, I mean, really a whole lifetime in just that short amount of time. Other families in similar situations, being able to walk them through the, their journey, uh, just having a similar journey to ours. We, we, we were able to meet uh, numerous families once our story was out there. And uh, it's just been an amazing journey just to be able to walk with them and share with them, tell them the joy and the light that comes uh, at the end of the tunnel with, with the Lord at your side and just being able to pick you up. The faith that we have has grown tenfold. It's just being able to trust in Him and just, and there are times when fear creeps in with the two little ones. Uh, we'll jump up at night like, what was that? Are they okay? But in the end it's you know we trust in the lord we know that he's going to protect us we know that his umbrella of grace joy peace and love is over us and over this family and over this house and in the end we we trust in him i feel like we have just a better excitement you know for heaven for what's to come i mean we especially miss her when we see our girls now and what she would be in that mix and but we know that she's not missing a thing. We just, we really believe that our girls will have a better understanding of heaven and of who God is and and we're excited about that and grateful that we were chosen for this. What does it mean that she was grateful to be chosen for this? 
what, how do you even connect with that? How does that even make sense? I, I, just, I just don't think it even makes sense to the people around us that there, that there can be any kind of good in something so difficult. That in any way we could see something so painful and that we could experience a deep-seated peace and joy within the pain. I think only through a perspective that's grounded in Christ, grounded in God as the Father of lights, the Father of all good things, can we go through these kind of things and come out the other side and know that God is still with us and experience joy through the, through the pain. I don't know, you, maybe you've spent your whole life running from pain. You've just been taught that's what you do. You run from it. But as Christians, there is a, there's an opportunity to walk through it and to let pain do its work in our lives because there is a place for pain in the life of a believer, certainly. See, I believe we have a choice to make just as this family. They could have come out the other side of this shaking their fist at God, angry with God, criticizing God, ridiculing him for putting them through the pain. You see, trials, they spark a decision. They spark a decision. We have to make a choice. Every time we're faced with a trial and the temptation is there to to try to do it on our own, to try to be self-sufficient, or to be angry with God, we have a decision to make. And the first question I think that we ask when we're dealing with trials is, is there even a God? Does he even exist? I mean, look at the world around us. Is, is, is this just chaos? Is any of this make any difference? And so we have to ask ourselves, is there a God at all? Then I think the second question that quickly comes on the heels of the first question is, if there is a God, then is he good? A lot of you have dealt with this. You've gone through hard things and you've gone, okay, I do think that there is a God and he is, he's messed up. I I mean, if if there is a God and he allows this and, and lets these things happen, that he is not good at all. But I believe, church, that, that today we have proof that God is good, that in the name of Jesus, we know that God is good. That Jesus is the picture of God himself seeing man in its frailty, destroying itself. And that God himself comes down into humanity and puts on the skin of humanity and comes into solidarity with humanity, experiences pain with humanity and bears the weight of our brokenness. That is a God who cares. That is God who loves us. That is a God who's good. And so if there is a God, and then if that God is good, I think the final question is, will you trust him? Will you let it go? Will you believe that he is working in all of this? And it might break his heart to see you in pain. And it, as a dad, I just am convinced that as he watched this family go through this, he, he was feeling the pain with them. Just as when my child falls on the bike, I'm going, you thought you had it, but you don't. And I'm going to feel the pain with you, but I'm going to get you back up. And, and one thing that I know is I wonder if these times of pain are some of the most beautiful moments for God as a father. Because what do we do? When we're in pain, we press into God. We reach out to God. And although we're in pain, I don't think God loves that we're in pain. I think he loves that through the pain, we reach out to him. 
And so you have a decision to make. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever you're walking through today, will you trust God? Maybe it's just with your doubts about faith. Maybe today you're like, I just have too many questions. I have questions without answers. It doesn't make sense to me. I believe you can leave that at the foot of the cross as well. All of your doubts, all of your questions, all of your problems. Will you trust God today? Let's pray together. Jesus, we are grateful for this place that we can gather together. God, thank you that we can kick into this new season as a, as a church, that we can reach out into our city in some new ways, God. And we just continue to pray for the empty chairs in this room as we look out in a city that is full of broken marriages, people who are seeking acceptance and, and love, God, those who have no hope. And God, we know that you are calling us to be your agents of grace into this city. God, we experience pain on our own, God, and sometimes we get so distracted by our own things. God, I confess that when I deal with pain or, or struggle, God, it makes me selfish, and I begin to look inwardly, and I focus on myself. God, would you help us to be a community of people who look outward? God, I want to pray for the person in this room today who feels like they are alone in their trial. God, who maybe feels like the situation they are dealing with is so much greater than anyone else in the room, that nobody could relate to this, Father. I, I know that if we went around the room and shared everything that we're struggling with, all of our trials, God, we would be here all night long. God, could we leave this at your feet today? We know that Jesus came to tell us that the, the struggles of this world and of our own sin will crush us that it's too much for us to bear. And God, though we think that we can sometimes, we really know in our heart of hearts, God, we cannot bear the weight on our own. So God, could we just leave the weight on your shoulders? Could we envision Jesus coming down and taking the heavy burden off of us? God, could we leave here a little bit lighter trusting in you? God, and as we worship, God, I know that worship matters so much more when we are trusting in you and we are giving something up to you. God, I pray that for every person in this room, as we sing here in a few moments, God, we could envision the release of all of the weight, God, and all of the pain, and we could let you carry it. And God, that, that we would overflow with gratitude and thankfulness because of what you've done for us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.